thing. Um, they're much more excited about you than these guys. I don't know what the problem is. What did you do to them? Um, but I want to tell you, Kim has been with us before, before I was even part of us. Um, when there was nothing but a movie theater here, there was no wall, which is, you know, you don't even know what's going to be behind when we reveal behind this. There's going to be nothing there when we reveal it. Um, but um, when uh, Kim was here, like, putting together office furniture, and at the very beginning when this was just going to be a video venue, we were going to broadcast someone else's teaching, you know, our, our, our senior pastor of Mariners, um, Kenton, and um, has been here from the very beginning. If you have ever had the experience of thinking, I kind of like being here. It's kind of cool. Or I, I want to bring my friends to this. Or I felt welcomed here. Or this feels like they speak my language here. You can thank him for that. If you've, yeah, go ahead. You can, right now you can do it. You guys, step it up. But this is, um, this is Kim's last Sunday. And so we have, and I let you guys know a couple weeks ago when the Compass and she let our leadership teams know and stuff like that. And, um, Man, as we, it's, it's weird because we said, I told Kim this this week as we were sitting in our staff meeting and there's like, I'm making plans and we're doing stuff, we're talking about stuff we're going to do in the fall, really exciting stuff. And I look at Kim like, you're going to be writing this down and taking care of all the details. And she's like, like literally giving me, I'm not going to be here for that. And it hit me then like, wow, we've had a partnership and it has been so great. And um, I think when people talk about our church, However they talk about our church, new, whether they're visitors, whether they talk about an experience, and they affirm the experience of being in here or the way it was to walk into the patio and everything else like that, what they're indirectly saying is, I appreciate you. What they're saying is, thank you, Kim, for the work that you put in, the hard, um, the hard hours, the, the tough conversations, the, the tough work it takes to solve problems. You don't even know how many times there is like, we have great plans, and the person who's supposed to fulfill, some outside vendor supposed to fulfill those plans is like not showing up and it's 30 minutes before, and Kim's finding a solution, and you don't even know. So, I mean, really, um, I, Kim, to, as, as someone who has been in church for a long time and um, has been here for, you know, two and a half years or so, I have loved working with you. I have loved being able to have a partnership in which we got to see great ground taken and in terms of redefining a lot of stuff that we do here and helping to t set the stage for the next phase of our church. And I'm, I'm honored to have worked with you. I love your family, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to miss Matt, well, not as much, but I'll miss, I'll miss, your, you know, um, Matt has had an instrumental role in our men's ministry, and you who I have just seen um, ask great questions and take great ground, and I have been honored to serve with you, and so um, we are going to miss you. So I'm going to give you a hug, this is, I'm just going to do this real quick, and here's what we're going to do, you guys, I'm going to, um, we're going to pray for her. If you've been with us before, we pray for people. Again, this is, I'm going to do this quickly, but basically we're going to put a hand out towards her. And it is simply a way for you to participate in the prayer. It's not like there's magical power in it. There's nothing there except that you're just saying, I'm in it with you. I'm praying for you. In the Bible, people lay hands on each other as a way of commissioning them is what it's called. And so if you're like, I'm not putting my hand towards her. That's weird. I'm not doing that. I'm new. I'm not, I don't, I'll put a finger or maybe I'll just a thumbs up or something. Great. But if you want to join me in praying for Kim and her family, um, you know, for their next steps as they're going on to, um, actually they live in Irvine and, um, have made their home there, and their daughter, um, Haley, is at Irvine High School, and they have great connections. They're not leaving the Mariners family, but um, are, are moving on to some other great stuff. But so if you want to join me in praying by putting your hand out, do so. If you're like, I refuse, great. It's okay too, all right? Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful to have spent time with, to have been influenced by, to have experienced um, the wisdom and the insight and the capability that you have um, gifted in Kim. 
Father, I know as I sit um, in the, that we share the same office space and we talk about stuff and we dream about things for our church, I know what is utmost um, about her is that she loves this church. Father, you have gifted her with so many things. I know that as she takes next steps and goes back to school and begins to think about her next steps as a family, Father, I pray that you would bless and you would guide and you would make the path clear and you would enable her um, to become even more of what she has already become in you, Father. And Lord, we know there is great, great things ahead and we are going to miss her dearly. And Jesus, we will invite her back when the wall comes down so she can be a part of that too. Uh, Lord, we are so grateful for this time, for this experience, for this season, Father, for this foundation that has been laid and the work that you've done in, in Kim for our church. And so, Father, it's in, in your name that we, we send her, we pray for her, and we love her. Amen. Amen. Now, here's the deal, too. I'm going to have these. Look out at them. I love that you have to do that all over again next service, too. That's so good. All right, so be sure and give her a hug on your way out. Make sure you let her know how much you appreciate her. You know, we actually, as a staff, we got her a gift to the um, Burke Williams spa so she could let go of all the stress she's been carrying for the past couple years here. Um, but, man, I am I'm grateful for you, Kim. I'm grateful for what, what's next for you as well. And, you know, well, you can, Matt, Matt will be fine. Um, um, so, so grateful for you guys. All right, one more thing. Um, gosh, there you go. Um, one more thing I want to let you know about a little, little family business. Um, we have high school camp is leaving, I think, tomorrow. And yeah, woo! Some of you are like, yeah, get those kids out of here. Some of you are like, I wish I could go. I get it. But you can't. The deal was, by the way, it was, it was 100 students, right? And then it was, you were going to shave everything, full face, hair, the whole bit. Jordan, if you guys don't know who Jordan is, our high school pastor, he, he looks like Jesus with glasses on. And I don't know what Jesus looked like, but that's probably it. Um, and he was going to shave his whole face, and he got 95 students. <laughs> like the ultimate victory. He gets everything. All the, you know, whatever. Um, but I want to let you know about our junior high ministry is going to camp in a couple weeks. And um, they are, they, they also have a million people going. They have 100 students or so going as well. And here's the deal. We need guy volunteers. And they're, they're like, we, got, we have to solve this problem as a church. I believe the solution is in these two services this weekend. It's in our church. We can solve this problem. But we need some of you to go, I want to do this. Now, here, let me just really quickly make a quick pitch. If you have never been a part, well, let me put it this way. My guess is you could point to somewhere in your junior high and high school years to a few people who made a significant impact in your life and changed your life direction forever. My guess is if you were to kind of replay, like, what was that like in high, what, did, what happened, what saved me from a decision I would have made or helped me recover after a couple bad ones that I made, more than likely it's a person that invested in you and cared about you. Maybe for a lot of you, it's where you first met Jesus and someone pointed you towards, um, towards him because they modeled and um, lived out an idea what, it, what that might look like for you. And we need, some, we need some guy leaders. We don't always ask for a pitch like this in the beginning of a service, whatever. But if you're like, I don't know if I can do it. I'm not young and awesome. You don't have to be young nor awesome to do this, okay? You don't have to be, you don't have to like own your own bungee cord kid and base jump for free or for fun. And you don't have to hang glide or, you know, whatever it is that you think a junior higher would be impressed with. You only have to do this. Let me just tell you. You have to be willing to love Jesus, to be willing to, to love students, even if you just like them a little, it's probably good enough. But you got to love Jesus. 
more often than not, we find that students are not looking for someone to be another, another really cool person in their lives. They have plenty of people that are like that. They need someone who can care about them and listen to them and point them to Jesus. It, it is hard to be at camp. It is also the best time of your life. And you will, you will never experience a greater joy than being a part of that ever. Um, there, and there are people in our volunteer team who are 19 years old, and there are people who are in their 50s and 60s who volunteer, and they make an incredible difference in a kid's life. So if you want to do that, talk to Hillary, who's our junior high pastor. She'll be out at the patio after church. Talk to her. Let her know that you're the greatest person in the world. And because just by volunteering, by talking to her alone, you're the greatest person in the world. And we can get, we can really see some lives change for some high, or some junior high students. Cool? Cool. All right. So all the women responded. Yeah, it's great. I love that. Good. Yeah, guys are like, I'm not sure. No, it's great. It really is great. All right. Now, um, welcome. Let's get started. Welcome. Um, if it's your first time with us, we, I just want to let you know I'm really glad that you're here. Obviously, there's a little bit different stuff than usual. We don't always give the announcements person a standing ovation. Um, they may deserve it, but we, they don't always get that. And so, um, but I'm, I'm really glad that you're with us. And really quickly, I just want to let you know as a church, um, if you're new, this is a church of people who do not have all the answers. We don't have everything together. We don't have everything figured out. Um, we are simply trying to do our best to love Jesus, to follow Jesus and love other people as much as we know how. None of us does that perfectly. We're a church for people, intentionally for people um, who haven't ever been and or who haven't been in a really long time. We don't sugarcoat anything, but we just want to make sure you know that you're welcome. We're glad they're here. We know what a great big deal it is to try to come to church if you haven't been in a while. We're in a series right now called Oh, the Places We'll Go. And if you're familiar with Dr. Seuss, it's a little play on the, the words um, from All the Places You'll Go, which is like the number one graduation gift ever. And the bias is you, the, in the Bible, the bi there's a bias for action and for movement. And the implication in that movement is that where people go is sort of like how they get shaped into being. In other words, as we ask the question, you know, the, probably the most difficult and fundamental question of our lives is the question, who am I? We've talked about this a couple weeks ago. I mean, who am I? It's like the biggest, most important question you could ask in your life. And as we try to figure all of that out, often the best way to answer that question isn't by just sort of trying to figure out the role that you play or your name or who your parents are or whatever, so the, although those are important. Perhaps one of the most helpful ways in determining who you are is to ask another question, which is this, where am I going? Like you could ask people, no matter what their stage, no matter how confused they are, where do you think you're headed? And they might get a better picture of who they are. And for us, we've been looking at this very question about where am I going? Where am I headed? Where might I be headed? Now, if God cares about who we are and who we're becoming throughout the Bible, you can see this as part of who he is, who he's designed us to be. He wants us to become something different than we are. That he shaped us and designing us to become something different. Then he then also cares about where we go. Psalm 32 says it this way. We've been looking at this every week. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, and I will counsel you with my loving eye upon you. And this has been kind of the, the idea, that God would take us, look at us and go, let me show you where to go. And in the places that you go, in the journey between here and there, you'll become something that I want and hope for you. Oh, the places will go. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you do care about us, that it is your loving hand that guides us. It is not fear or intimidation. It's not coercion. Father, it's that you would lovingly take us from where we are now to a place we cannot go without you. Father, every week as we gather, we just take a moment to pause, to sit still for a few seconds. Jesus, might you remind us of where we are and maybe give us a glimpse of where you intend to take us, a place of restoration and wholeness and hope. So, Father, we pause for just briefly that you might speak to us in the stillness 
in the very, very small moment of silence that we might have each week, just right now speak to us, Father. Jesus, we trust you to guide us, even if we don't always know what that means. We've tried it on our own, and we need your help. Lead us in very small steps, if that's all we can do, that we might find a wholeness in you, and truth, and a hope, and a love. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, we have a lot I want to get through. I'm really excited about today. This is like, as I was preparing this, and thinking about it, and talking about it with our team, this is as, I'm as excited about this as any message I've ever given. And so I'm really excited. Why don't you do this? Take your outline out. It's in your bulletin. I got to go kind of a little bit quick um, to make sure we get through everything. But, I, I, man, I'm really excited about it. So pull your outline out if you want to pull that out. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, great. We'll be in, in Mark chapter 5. If you want to follow along on the screen, that's great as well. But here we go. Um, this, this past weekend, um, or this past week I got back from camping. Um, and you guys know I have a love-hate relationship with camping. We borrowed an RV, and it was, it was awesome. And I now realize everybody who ever camps in a tent is a complete and total sucker. That is so stupid. <laughs> it was like, you know, we're, I'm sleeping on a warm, dry bed every night. And, you know, my kids are getting all cranky and tired in the afternoon. And they need a little downtime. It's like, why don't you guys watch a DVD? And, you know, we'll just, you know, it was like, <laughs> this is the way God intended nature to be, you know, enjoyed. So um, I, I realize there's a lot that we didn't get to do because we weren't out in the middle of the sticks somewhere, you know, building a lean-to out of, you know, leaves or whatever and eating the fruit of a cactus or something, but it was pretty nice to go to the general store right there in the RV campsite and, you know, buy a soda. Um, but anyways, we're camping, and now at one point, we decide, uh, we, you know, we're about, a, we're about three quarters of a mile from the beach, and uh, my kids are like, we got to go to the beach. I'm like, yeah, we do. It's hot. Let's go do that. So we have, we have our bikes with us, and um, we load up the bikes, and, you know, we're, they're like, we got to take our boogie boards, and I'm like, sweet. We have three boogie boards, three kids and three boogie boards. And I'm like, we can find a solution for this. So I take all of the ratchet tie-down straps that are from the, like, from the RV, and I make, like, this honeycomb, basically, of all these straps around three boogie boards in the back of my wife's beach cruiser because she has a little rack thing in the back. And then one of my kids is like, can you bring one of the surfboards? I was like, sure. So now I'm holding a surfboard. I have a backpack full of snacks, and I have three boogie boards on this cruiser. And my wife looks at me and goes, I don't think this is a good idea. Which I immediately look at her, which I, which I hear her say, I'm like, I hear Amanda go, I don't think it's a good idea. And, I, and what I hear her say essentially is, you should try to do this, I bet you can't do it. <laughs> Guys, am I right? <laughs> so, I, we are, I mean, it's like, it's, this, is, this is incredibly dangerous, I realize, after about 100 feet of riding this, this bicycle. And it's like, I could barely move the handlebars without turning the surfboard, which is, of course, now sideways and in, in the traffic because we're driving down there. And so this is kind of how I'm doing this. Now, on the way down, it's all, it's almost entirely downhill. You know, it's so like, this is awesome. This is so fun. My kid's like, that was so easy. We made it in about five minutes. You know, not even, not even that. We're just coasting through, waving at the rangers as we go down to the beach. And they're like, that's so stupid. They just, they're looking at us like, you're never going to make it out. Now, my youngest kid is six. My oldest is 11. And they're, I mean, like, like a smart person would go, it's all the way downhill to the beach. Then you're going to get totally sun exposed and tired. And then you're going to go, let's all go home. Ride bikes up this hill. Okay, now, we get to the bottom of the beach. We, we hang out. We have a great time. And our kids are exhausted, sunburned. They're dehydrated. And I'm, look, I'm looking at Amanda, and she's kind of giving me these, like, 
I'm not going to say I told you so face, but it's the like, what are we going to do now, Jeff, you know? <laughs> so I, um, I, next to it, like right near us, God showed up. Because there's our, our like neighbors that are at our campsite are right there. And I'm like, hey, you guys, what's up? And they see me strapping everything to the bike. And they go, did you want us to take that surfboard in our truck back to the campsite for you? Yes. Yes, I do. So I put the surfboard in there. And yes, we have to ride our bike up. My youngest said some things that were like hilariously overdramatic about how he wanted to die and all this kind of stuff. It's like over the top. Now. But I tell you a story. There is a part of us, we start talking about a journey. And remember, God's intending to take us on some kind of a journey. It's not much of a journey unless there, I mean, and every journey is a story, right? But it's not much of a story even unless there's some kind of drama, if there's something to overcome, if there's some kind of trial. In fact, we have to have drama to make a story really good. In fact, I would say probably more so, we live in the midst of a really bizarre irony, which is that we really, really are praying all the time in some way or another, God, please make everything a lot more simple than it is. My life is hard. I need it to be simple. And yet we don't really want to be a person who tells boring stories either. Like if you ask someone about like a plane flight, before someone gets on a plane flight, Amanda is really scared of flying. Her prayer is like, the, I, want the most, I want the most boring, run-of-the-mill plane flight. I want no drama. I, want, I, don't want, I, this is, I hate this, and so we're flying on a plane. Now, when you get somewhere, though, if you fly on a plane and someone goes, they ask you this question, which is always like the funniest question in the world. How was your flight? Well, we made it. <laughs> Took off and landed and whatever. And, but you kind of feel the obligation to go, oh, let me tell you what happened. A kid started crying. When we were in the, we were in security, the security guy thought it'd be really funny to try some jokes on us. And my kids freaked out and someone, you know, it's like you, all of a sudden there's like, there's a need to make a story a little better than it is. We pulled away from the gate and waited for like 20 minutes and the AC was down in the plane and I thought we were going to die. It's like, that's not a big deal. That's not a drama. But you need to make it feel like drama. And so we live in the middle of two really difficult worlds where we want things to be incredibly simple and yet we also kind of want the adventure of a story and we don't really know what to do. We want an adventure. We want a life of real drama. We want a life of adventure. We want something that seems really fun and exciting and yet we also are praying that it would be the most dull, boring life in the world we've ever could have imagined. And yet, life tends to give us, without trying, drama. Because for the most part, our life isn't boring or we're trying to embellish it. For the most part, our life is really difficult. And there are moments where we go, I don't know if I can make it. And we really are thinking that seriously. Not for the purpose of telling a story later. In fact, we're going, I don't know if I care if there's a story. I just want to make it. And we're praying for things to be calm. We're praying for things to be ordinary and to be dull and boring. For most of us, we get stuck in a place where there's too much drama and we want to get out of it at some point in our lives. We're stuck. We want to know how to get out. Jesus' ministry is constantly with people who are stuck, who are actually, they're okay telling the story, but they don't want to be stuck where they are now. If you turn to Mark chapter 5, or if you look right here on your outline, you could, or on the screen, you can see where Jesus begins his other story, where he meets someone who's stuck. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They went across. They, as Jesus and his disciples, they went across the lake to the regions of the Gerasenes. Now, Really quickly, they were already, if you're with us last week, Inez, who did a really great job, by the way. Gosh, I got some emails from you folks who were like, this, was, this is exactly what my marriage needed, exactly what I needed to hear. My life has been, I mean, it's really cool stuff. You're with us last week. Worth listening to, by the way. But there's a story here where Jesus and his disciples are crossing a stormy sea. Jesus is asleep in the, in the boat in the, where they're crossing this lake. He wakes up, calms the storms, 
and this is where they've now come from. They've come from one place, they've crossed the lake, now they've come across to the other side of the lake. Okay, this is a region that's not part of um, where, Jesus, where the Jews live. This is a Gentile territory. Okay, Gentiles, anybody not Jewish? Verse 2, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him, and bind him anymore, not even with a chain. So here's this, Jesus gets out of the boat, and immediately a guy, well, I don't know what that sounds like, but like, I'm assuming it's a little scary, walks up, I, I wasn't there, but that's basically probably what it sounded like, comes up to Jesus, and the, all of his disciples who get out of the boat are like, whoa, let's get back in the boat. You know, who knows what kind of fear they have. But there's this guy kind of living in the tombs, unbound, kind of crazy. Verse 4, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. I mean, this is a person who is clearly afflicted. Now, let me just catch you really quickly on a couple things here. It says that no one was able to subdue him. That word in Greek is actually closer to the word, it's, the, the word, it's on your outline, it's the word damato. It's actually a word closer to tame. I want you to catch for just a moment what's, what's sort of really important to, ha to, to capture here. There is this guy who has been afflicted by demonic powers. Now, I, I have to say a little side note here, first of all. Some of you will have a tendency to go, yeah, 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 they didn't have a word for like schizophrenia, or they didn't have a word for multiple personality disorder, so they just called it demonic stuff, because they didn't have a word for that, so that's probably what it was. Now, let me tell you, there's, if that helps you for today's talk, okay, but let me tell you, it doesn't answer every question about the problem of evil in the world. And more often than not, when you talk to people who have been in, been in church for a long enough time, they're going to encounter things that are just beyond a multiple personality. They're things that are about really evil stuff. So this is like, I don't want to, like, we should neither be obsessed with it, nor should we kind of blow it off. But this is a real thing. Jesus is addressing it. It's one of the ways in which he proclaims and, deter like, announces to the world the kingdom of God is here by dealing with things that are evil spirits, demons. Okay, so I know some of you are like, I'm not sure I want to deal with that. Okay, don't deal with it today, but just for another talk, you need to know, this is not like a fake thing. This is a for real thing. All right. Now, when someone in this situation is being subdued or tamed, you have to take a moment and realize that human beings are not intended to be tamed. This is a person who is being treated like an animal, who is lost and alone, who is isolated. The mission of evil is always to isolate and to dehumanize. So here is a person afflicted by evil, alone, and losing what it means to be a human being. The image of humanity is being eroded in this person. It's such a rapid rate, and it's so obvious. He's naked, screaming, cutting himself, and living among the tombs. And he's unable to be tamed, which is what the people apparently have been trying to do. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. This is kind of an interesting component here. In the spirit, now there's a couple things going on. One is this. In the spirit world, the way that people understood in the ancient sort of landscape of spirit stuff, is that when you could name the name of an alternative, another spirit, you could take control over it. So people in the ancient world are constantly trying to figure out the names of other spirits that they might be able to take them and utilize them for power. You with me? Now, Jesus walks up. The demon or demons, which we'll find out in a little bit here, acknowledge who Jesus is by saying simply, 
his name. Jesus, son of the most high God. That's a pretty interesting kind of thing. In all of Jesus' ministry, as he's walking around, as he's performing miracles and teaching about this thing called the kingdom of God over and over again and demonstrating it with the miracles, over and over, the people who follow him are confused about his identity. The religious leaders are obviously confused about his identity because they try to kill him. And the only, group of, the only group who seems to fully correctly identify who Jesus is are the demons. Throughout the scripture, it's like the demons are the ones who are, keep on saying, oh, you're Jesus, son of God. And this is kind of an interesting component, right? I mean, everybody else gets it wrong except the demons, which means, as a side note, it isn't enough to simply acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God, because the demons do that. Clearly what it means is something else about what it means to be someone who's a follower of Jesus isn't just giving, identifying Jesus' name, because the demons, there's something else to it, which Jesus' his whole ministry is about sort of allegiance, a following, not just identifying who he is. This, in the ancient reader's mind, would have been a way for a demon, a spirit being, to try to take control of another being who has a spirit power, Jesus. And this is what he says. Jesus, son of the most high God, in God's name, don't torture me. This is an attempt to rescue himself from pain and sorrow, whatever else demons feel. I don't know what they feel if they feel sorrow, whatever it is. But there's this showdown right here, this spiritual showdown. Verse 9, or verse 8. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. So now Jesus doesn't, you know, Jesus doesn't really answer him. He just says, come out of this man, you impure spirit, which is what Jesus does when he encounters people who are suffering the affliction of uh, demonic possession. Verse 9, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? Now, now you can kind of see there's this give and take here. The demon asks Jesus' name, or Je he pronounces Jesus' name, and then Jesus kind of returns, sir. Well, what's your name? Watch this. My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Now, really... This is essentially what this demon is saying is, he doesn't really give him a name. He doesn't respond with a name. He essentially responds with a number. Legion. A legion is 6,000 Roman soldiers. What he's saying essentially is, this demon is saying is, we're an army of demonic power in this guy. We don't even have a name. So what's being, what's being spoken here is a way to try to evade even actually give a name. So that Jesus could not take control. Now, this is the interchange here you have here. Now, of course, well, you'll get this in a second. There's a lot of irony you're about to see here. Verse 10. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. Now, I want you to see this for a moment. This is really tricky. I want you to notice something really exciting. Pronouns. Okay? And he, remember this is 6,000 demons being referenced here. He is the man being plagued. He begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Them, them are the demons. Them is the demons. Now why in the world would the man afflicted, the naked, howling, cutting himself in the tombs man, say he, begged Jesus, not to send them out of the area? The source of his captivity, the source of his pain, the source of his sorrow. And he says, Jesus, don't send them very far away. I want them kind of at arm's length if I need them again or something. Now, we look at that and go, look, maybe you haven't had an experience or encounter with, like, kind of demons and stuff. But you're like, I don't know about that, but I'm sure I wouldn't want them near me. 
And yet this guy says the most bizarre things. I, I just want them not too far away from me. There's something really strange that we all tend to do that we forget that we do. Which is that most, uh, most every single person I've ever known in my entire, and the most you have ever known, would say, or I, would, I should say this way, would not say, but would live this way, which is to have kind of a love affair, an attachment to the things which afflict, afflict us the most. We say we want to be away from them. We really desire to be freed up from the things that are really bogging us down. But when it comes time to really see them go away, we kind of want to keep them a little bit close. I just grabbed this from a psychology website. I'm not sure, you know, I forget who, I, who this is from. But here's, a, here's what someone says, a psychologist. Though the condition is painful, the individual feels strong resistance of letting it go what's so familiar. Even though this familiar sense of self is associated with misery. The feeling is, who will I be if I let go of my suffering self? Letting go of the troubled self can truly feel like a form of death. We have the most strange relationship with pain and sorrow and suffering. We want to be free of it, and when there's an opportunity to be free of it, we go, ah, if I could, what if I need it again? We think, why would I need it? Because there's a part of us that's so familiar with it. There's a part of us that's grown accustomed to our pain. It's actually become part of our identity. And we have then this bizarre love relationship with our own pain. Because it's at the some level, if we begin to sort of understand this, we stay stuck until we can overcome this reality. You're like, that's not me. I'll give you a couple examples. Maybe you relate to this. People who are suffering but don't want to be, not to see the end of their suffering, do things like this. See if this sounds like you. These are people who are prone to blaming. Meaning that there's a part of themselves that's broken, but if they can find a way to deal with it in someone else, blaming, that would be better because it's too painful to let go of the stuff that's really hurting. People who are prone to anger, self-pity, Projection, transference, transference, injustice collection is what they call it. The idea of sort of keeping tabs of all the things that have ever happened to you that are wrong so you can put it on other people instead of actually dealing with the things that really hurt you. We do this. We have a really kind of conflict relationship with our pain because we sort of want it. And there's this man saying, I want to be freed up here, but just keep everybody kind of close by. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was feeding in the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. So there's some kind of acknowledgement of Jesus' power. They know Jesus is going to do something with these, with these spirits. They all are kind of aware of it, whatever that means. And they then start making requests. Oh man, it's going down. This is not going to go well for us. Hey Jesus, can you send us into the pigs that are nearby? Now watch, this, watch Jesus' response. He gave them permission. Now it seems like, wait a second. <laughs> wait, aren't you supposed to be the one in control? Jesus, you're letting demons kind of tell you what to do? And he, the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. Now, just for a moment, you have to, you have to kind of get the scene here. They're, de- they're by the lake. They're by the tombs. There's a crazy, you know, possessed person at this point who they don't know what to do with. All the townspeople don't know what to do with. 
Jesus confronts them, and they're now having a conversation. The, the spirit demon and Jesus are having a conversation. And this demon says, send us into the pigs. And Jesus says, okay. Maybe it's because Jesus knows something the demons don't yet. Realize what's about to happen to them, which is the herd, about 2,000 in number, which is a lot of pigs. I don't know that I've ever seen more than like 10 pigs ever, like on TV even. I mean, that's a lot of pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. <laughs> I just, that's hilarious to me. I don't know, maybe you love pigs, but that's funny to me. Like there's a couple farmers out there next to the tomb, standing there, taking care of their pigs. And then they're just running. The pigs are like, you can just imagine those guys going, look at those pigs. Man, they're running. They're not stopping, are they? Nope. Do our pigs swim? Nope. What happened to our pigs? I mean, like, you just, the, the whole, the whole scene is just, there's these guys, oh, I don't know what they're doing out there, but they're standing there, and the pigs are then like, we're running to the water. And, like, you just can imagine, they're, they're, they got to be a little bit ticked off at Jesus, like, whoa, we're going to have bacon fest. I mean, in the spring, it was going to be awesome. All the Gentiles who don't eat, you know, who can eat, you know, pork, we're all going to be hanging out, it's going to be awesome. You ruined our plans. You ruined our livelihood. And we cannot explain this. The demons wanted to be thrown into the pigs, believing that they could continue on their existence. Jesus goes, oh, sure, you can have that. Let's see what happens. I remember when I was, um, this is a bad example because I'm not dealing with a demon. I'm dealing with my son, this story, but you'll get the picture. <laughs> he was like two years old, which some of you who have two-year-olds are like, yeah, you know, that, that's kind of close. The line between those two things is pretty close. But we're at a Mexican restaurant, and he's continuing to try to eat the salsa. And I'm like, buddy, you're going to burn your mouth. You know, how he explains to a two-year-old. He's like, you know, I, I, he's like, he starts to cry. So finally I was like, enjoy. Help yourself. And I watched him take a bite. Like, it, it literally, I don't know how a two-year-old could do this. It was like, took a bite, he looked at me like, in your face, Dad, I can eat this. And then it hit him. So it was like, mmm. <laughs> grabbing the flan or whatever in the Mexican restaurant, trying to smear it on his face, whatever. It was just like, whatever he could do to get that out of his mouth. Now, this is the same kind of permission that's happening. Again, bear with me on the example. But you get the idea. The demons are asking permission. Jesus is like, sure, you can have the deviled pigs. Go for it, deviled ham. Here it is. Whatever. Have some fun. I mean, he just lets them go. And they run into the, they run into the water and kill themselves. Now, the belief in the ancient world is, of course, that spirits do not want to just free roam. They want to occupy a space. And so for the pigs to be dead, they're actually, the spirits are now lost. These people, they, this, these demons or whatever, are, they don't have a, anything to occupy. If they were excited about the pigs, and then the pigs went away. Verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. Now, this, this man had been stuck forever. To look at the idea of all oh, the places will go for this guy. This man had been stuck forever. Now the demons have been cast into the pigs. The pigs gallop. I don't know how pigs gallop. They waddle or whatever they do into the water and die. The, pig, the people who are watching the pigs are like, oh my gosh, we're really ticked off about losing our pigs. They go and tell everybody in the town. And the people went out to see what had happened because they don't believe it. Now remember, this is the lake, this is the water where Jesus and his disciples just come across. 2,000 pigs are now feet up in the water, like uh, dead in the water. It's like this is kind of a gross scene of like, what people, families coming down to the beach to hang out that day are like, oh, well, the pigs are here, I guess. We're, I mean, it's like awful now. Okay, now, people came to see what has happened. 
And my thing died. Oh, there it goes. Whoops. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. They're like, wait, we know this guy. He has a reputation. We've seen him. We know him. We've been around this guy. And oh my gosh, we've been trying to tame him forever. And now he's sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Of all the things that they have seen that are scary, it's a man who's clothed and not crazy is the scariest thing. They've seen a guy howling, breaking change, cutting himself, screaming into the dark. They've seen pigs, or heard about at least the story, of these pigs who have run down the mountainside and committed pig suicide into the water. And the thing that's scary is a normal person. Tell me we do not have a secret love affair for the pain of ourselves or others. The scariest thing is a person who is normal, who is calm, who is dressed, who used to be crazy. That's scary. What is it about us? There's something about us that seems to love the affliction of stuff. And it's that very kind of, that, that there's a difference between trial, I should say, and the difference between and going through stuff on the way to something else, like a journey that God wants to take us on. And people are continually stuck because there's a fear about letting go of our own suffering and pain because somehow we need it for our identity. And even more so, there's a part of us that loves the suffering, the pain of other people because we can always say, well, at least I'm not like them. I know what that is and I want them to suffer, so I don't... I just want to know that I'm not as bad off. Whatever it is within us, there's something about us that needs other people to be worse off than us. They saw the man sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. It begs a question for us. What's wrong when nothing's wrong? What's wrong when nothing? We almost have to invent stuff. We have to figure out a way for so much of our lives. We have, we have this sense about us. We go, I, you know, there's, if everything's calm, we're going to have to, so that can't be the way it's supposed to go. We live with pain or we live with trial or we live with the pain of things. And we go, my gosh, that's more familiar to us. It's more, we're more okay with that than to try to figure out, than to try to figure out some kind of resolution. We have an attachment to this kind of thing. What's wrong when nothing's wrong? For the man, he wants the demons to be sent away. But he, or for the man, he wants the demons to be close by, actually. And for the town, they want the man to continue to be afflicted. And somehow or another, we need the wild man. We need the village idiot. We need someone we can look at and go, that person is crazy. It's not us, but that person's crazy. We need it for some reason. We want them to stay afflicted. At least we'll never be like them and we'll never have to confront the stuff that's really keeping us stuck in our own lives, preventing us from going anywhere. I read this week, I was doing some research on this talk. One researcher says, puts it this way, he says, we have an innate need for attraction. Meaning, we have within us a need to be attracted and bound to something. And we will find anything we can, we can find to be bound to something, even, even if what we're being bound to is painful or damaging, or dangerous. 
but we don't know how to be ourselves until we're bound to something. And the invitation by Jesus to people is to be bound to him. Verse 16. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened. To, uh, sorry, those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. He's so powerful, he, break, he brings freedom to people. Could you, <laughs> thanks so much for coming out. It's been great. Go back across the lake. Watch out for the pigs. They're floating around your ship now or your boat. Thank you for everything you've done. Go ahead and leave. They don't know what to do with the man who brings freedom. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Now this is what happens all throughout Jesus' ministry. He heals someone. He brings, he, you know, he, he has this confrontation with the religious leaders and he gathers more disciples. Religious leaders are like, stay away from us. He, um, he brings about some kind of hope or he, whatever it might be. And people go, we want to follow you. And always you expect the answer to be, of course. Jesus is about bringing people to follow him. And he has this answer for this guy. Jesus did not let him. What? Jesus, thank you for everything you've done for me. I want to follow you. No, not you. Other people, they, you know, they're a little better than you, and you're scary. So no, no, no. That's not what happens here. Look at this. But said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. A couple things I want you to catch. Jesus didn't let him, not because he didn't like him. And this isn't like an indefinite, don't follow me forever. No, but just don't, don't need to walk with me, get back in the boat, you know, back, just stay here. Now, another thing you got to realize is Jesus came across the lake, the stormy sea, got out of the boat, met a guy in the tomb, did the whole casting the demons into the pigs, and then they just got back in the boat. That's the whole ministry work right there. There's no walking around, there's no, let's stay for a few days, or the beach is beautiful, nothing. They just get out, the demon confrontation, and back in the boat. And the guy was like, thank you, can I go with you? No, we got places to be. And he says, I want you to go home to your own people, which the implication here is your people, guy who's just been healed, your people are not my people. Jesus, a Jew, has a ministry and a project that he's initiated to start there. But he tells this guy, you're going to tell this story to your people. You now have a story in which you were once one way and you've now become this other way. And you have gone through incredible trial and you are the person to paint the picture for what it means to live a life that someone who has been affected has had an encounter with Jesus. I need you. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go home to your own people and tell them how much, oops, tell them how much the man has, tell them how much Jesus has done for you. So then here's what happens. So the man went away and began to, into, to tell in the Decapolis. Decapolis is a Greek word simply meaning ten towns. These are all towns of people who are not Jewish. And he begins to tell them how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people, not surprisingly, were amazed. The word amazed, by the way, in the Greek is really close to the word terrified. Like they're like, holy smokes. Really? The pigs? And the howling, and you were naked, and you were like screaming, and all people, you broke chains. Yeah, yeah, Jesus broke me in that power. He freed me. No way. That's what that is. And the people were amazed. I'll break this down again. Go home to your own people. Your home is not my home, and your people are not my people, but they need this story, is what he says. Now, for you, 
Some of you have been coming to church, been a part of our conversation, been a part of the life of the community here, and you've loved and you've been a part of it, and you're going, man, I, it's really great to be here. I love what it feels like, minus some of the wall stuff. I get it, but you're over, you're over that. And what you think in your head is, I just want to be here. I love that this is such a retreat from my life. And I want to challenge you for a moment, if this is your home church, to consider that your own neighborhood is your home and your own people, and some of those people are desperate for a story of hope because they don't know what else to do. Some of them need your story. Some of them maybe just need to be invited that we might tell it. Here's what it continues on. And tell them. Now remember, Jesus is again telling everybody throughout the Bible. Don't tell people, even in Mark. See that you don't tell this to anyone. He gave strict orders to let, not to let anyone know about this. Mark 7, 36. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. These are all these miracles that happen. Jesus tells people, don't tell. But to this guy, to a place where Jesus will not travel, where the crowds will not impede his ability to do his project, he says, tell everybody. Tell them. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. People need to know the story. There are people in your life. I was, um, this week I was um, at the gym and ran into a guy and, you know, kind of become friends and talking about stuff. He's actually helping me. He's like way stronger than me, which I know you're like, <laughs> shocker. Uh, you're like, my nine-year-old daughter stronger than you. Well, whatever. Okay, I'm learning. Okay, I'm trying. But he's like showing me how to do stuff. We get talking and, you know, I kind of know a little bit of his backstory. There's people who are longing to see hope. And he's just going, he, he actually talked to one of my friends and said, you know, we're, we're looking for another, we're looking for a way to get some more answers in our marriage, which everybody is. And I thought about how many people are in that, and he, he's actually part of our church, and he's going to take some next steps, and it's great. And then I thought about, and you know, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but you know, this is a person who's taking some next steps. And I thought, how many people in that same place that where I was are in the same place as that person, but have nowhere to go? And they would come to church, but they just are like, well, what do you guys do in there? What actually happens in that place? And they need someone to say, why don't you come with me and see it? I'm not very good at telling the story, all this stuff about Jesus, but I can tell you I've been helped. Because the alternative is simply to say to the people in our neighborhoods, our communities, is you might be stuck. And maybe there's a part of us, if we're really eerily uh, kind of honest is that we kind of want to say to them, I'm kind of glad that you're stuck. Because it makes me feel a little bit better. And I want to challenge us with this. This is your home church. It's not your home church. You're not sure you want to bring people here yet. You're like, well, I don't know what you guys are doing here yet. I get it. But if this is your home church, don't keep this a secret club. We'll make more space. We got plenty of these really comfortable plastic chairs. They're awesome. We'll do whatever we got to do. But here's what I want you to understand. You have a reason, if this is your home church, just simply to explain how in some way God has done something in your life to bring people to church. Just say, why don't you come with me? Why don't you see what this is like? I don't have all the words. I don't have all the way to explain it. But people, it turns out, people who come here for the first time, when I talk to them at the door, we don't do everything perfect. I mean, you know that. I get your emails letting me know we don't do everything perfect as well. But when I'm by the door, here's what people say. I felt so welcomed here. I had someone on our, you know, one of our volunteers send me a bunch of stories of people that are a part of their ministry who were invited. Nearly every single person who's made a significant decision in their life towards health, towards wholeness, to, to like move away from addiction, whatever else it might be, they all started with an invitation. Simple invitation. Would you guys, would you ever want to come with me to church? No, I'm not really a church person. Okay, but, and then later on, do, they come back and say, yeah, we'd like to go. It'd be great to go to your church. 
And the response I get from people at the door when I'm standing there is, we've never been to a church like this before. I, have no, I haven't been to church in a really long time. And you people, what they say, the people here are so friendly and so real. I can't wait to come back. I'm not sure about Jesus, but I can't wait to come back. There is a story to be told in people's lives. There's a, there is a moment in which people are going to be transformed, and we simply need to include them. And what happens to us in that moment, you will, never, you will be more invested in our church than you ever have been in your life if you invite someone who's never been to church. It's the funniest thing. Like, you come to church every week and you bring someone who doesn't go to church, you will care about every detail. You'll be like, why is he wearing that? Oh, gosh, you know, oh, this, the coffee, I don't know if the, the, the cup, the coffee, was, is it too hot? Are we okay? Is the, the parking, is that, what's the parking, are we, you know, every detail, you're like, why is the carpet like that? Why don't we get that light bulb fixed? And you'll see every detail because you're so aware of this person. You will be more invested in our church than you ever have been in your entire life. You will care far more. And what will grow in your own heart is a generosity that begins to demonstrate a kind of compassion for people around you. You do not have to have all the answers. But you can be warm and invite people to be a part of a journey that you're already on. I want you to see from, I want you to see a brief story of a guy who um, came to church, came to Mariners, and his life was transformed by being a part of this community. Here's, here's a visitor's view of what it's like to come. Maybe you can remember back what this is like. What this is like. Check this out. It's dark here. Now it's darker. There we go. Still it's dark. Probably about 25 years ago that uh, my wife said, uh, you know, you've been to church from time to time and you think it's about time that you made it the same habits that I have. I was very cynical. I didn't believe in organized religion. I saw a lot of hypocrisy in the church that I didn't care for. When we started going to Mariners, I felt that there was some kind of a genuine feeling it seemed authentic. When I started getting involved in the church, primarily with uh, kids, and the more I saw with the kids, in fact, I'm kind of getting goosebumps right now, but when I saw what was happening with the kids, I knew there was something there more than what I brought to the table. I never will forget the time that there was this young, tough kid we had a royal family kids camp, and part of that was uh, the kids that sang, and he was in the back. And he started crying. And it, I was convinced there was more. When I first went to Mariners, I was really impressed with the way people mingled. And people didn't just walk out, get in their car, and go home. And the church was really a uh, very friendly, non-threatening place for them. I, I really liked to just stand and watch them all come out, talking and laughing. And that's the same thing that I see at Mariners today. A wife invites a husband. He's emotional about little kids, about the impact that gets to happen in their lives. Transformation happens when we take some big journey steps. And perhaps for so many of you, the journey today is simply to go home to your people and to tell the story. 
This is a theme that started last week. You heard Inez talk about it. We're going to talk about it for the next couple weeks. But this idea of going, this isn't a secret club. That the place God might be sending us to, this great big journey where we get transformed, might simply be to our own neighborhood. Not just to do good there, but to include people in what's going on here. Let's pray together, and then we'll stand and we'll respond in worship. Jesus, we are so grateful for the journey that you have us on. That you aren't simply demanding that we come forward, that, but that you meet us where we are, and you carry us where we, where we intend to go, or where you intend for us to go. Father, we are not unlike a man lost and alone, sometimes howling into the darkness, wanting and desiring hope. Other times, Father, we're great at keeping people in that position because it makes us feel better about ourselves, not having to deal with the things we're able to cover up in our lives. And so, Father, we need your help. We are continuing to be on a journey. None of us has arrived. None of us can say that we're done being transformed by you. And so, Father, might we invite people to join us in it. Humbly, Father, we come before you. That we might be people who walk with integrity, who love boldly, and who would include people, be generous with our invitation, including people to be a part of the life transformation you intend to give. So, Father, would you hear our songs? Would you hear our songs as we set our prayers to music and we sing them with full voice, with expectation of the journey that you have us on? We might proclaim, Father, of the mercy that you have shown us and the great wonder of your works. In your name, Father, we pray. Amen. Why don't we stand together and let's respond to God. The moon and stars, they wept. The morning sun was dead. The Savior of the world was fallen. His body on the cross. His blood poured out for us, the weight of every curse upon him. Oh. Uh-huh.